0: I recently visited my hometown of Melton Mowbray in Leicestershire, England for the first time in 25 years. I noticed that the memories I've attached to its landmarks weren't typical to most people revisiting their hometown. In place of the pleasant formative experiences you'd expect were the memories of violent criminals and distraught victims. Today, I'll be talking to my producer, Adam, about some of the most unbelievable cases from my early career in law enforcement, from soccer hooligans to homicide. These are the experiences that shaped my career and the person I am today. From Storic Media, you're listening to Codename Siren, a true crime podcast with Nina Hobson.
1: Initially, you were a beat cop or a street cop. I'm not sure what they would call it, but I'm sure you have a colorful, <laughs> much more colorful way of describing it in England, but maybe we would call it like a beat cop.
0: Or yeah, a you would cop. you would call it a cop. I mean, we were never cops to start with. We were bobbies, right, we British right. bobbies. <laughs> and uh, so I was a beat bobby. Yeah,
1: that's delightful. Sounds
0: so much nicer, doesn't it? Beat bobby. Back then, I wore a skirt because we weren't allowed to wear trousers as a woman or pants. And I carried a handbag and my handbag contained my tiny little wooden truncheon, And it was about, hmm, probably maybe as big as my ruler.
1: Eight inches?
0: Maybe. Um, and yeah. this
1: is like a, like a clock?
0: Like a very small, very, very small baton. That you you would have now, but it fitted into my handbag perfectly. And I had a bow tie that went around my neck. And that was, and our hats were solid, pointless, but solid because, you know, the minute you moved or ran or jumped, they fell off anyway. So it was kind of pointless. But, and I had uh, a pair of handcuffs that I still have. Um, that weren't like the handcuffs that there are now. They were like very old handcuffs. And that was my uniform. And it was several years before they allowed women to wear pants. They then took the bow ties off of us because somebody had tried to strangle a, a woman at a fight by pulling the bow tie around. And now you'll see the British cops have like a checkered black and white cravat that just hooks into the top of their shirt. That's why. And they eventually gave us a longer baton. Ooh. <laughs> um, and then we did progress to a side handle baton eventually. But um, yeah, when I, I stood in the middle of this town last week and I was like, wow, that was just, it's crazy. And I didn't identify the areas as I walked around with, you know, oh, there's the pub that I went in and got drunk in, and oh, there's the pub that I had my first date in. Oh, no. I walked around the town and I was like, that's where I did my first arrest. That's where I was held hostage. That's where I was attacked with a hammer. That's where I got a black eye. That's a car accident. And and it was the most bizarre experience because I had not for a second thought that, all of that would come flooding back, as it did.
1: And did you find yourself having to kind of reprocess some of this emotion as you visited the scene of some of these crimes, or was it just like a a nostal- wave of nostalgia?
0: No, I, because the crimes weren't necessarily pleasant, and we mentioned the first—you know, my first dead body was a kid blowing his head off on the top of the church tower. Well, the church tower in a little village town in England is the center of the village. And and actually, the friends that I was with, I said, I need to take a picture of the church tower because I want to put that in my book because that's where my first dead body was. And so when I walked around, it, it was with sadness rather than, you know, it wasn't, I wasn't traumatized until I got to the house that I remembered I'd been held. And I have never mentioned that case because I think I'd put it away somewhere. And I walked by the house. Well, we actually, we were driving by the house and I just went, stop. And the people I was, what's wrong? And I went, that's where I was held. And they were like, oh, are you okay? And for a minute I wasn't, I was like, uh, like it it was because i I always claim and I always say I don't have PTSD and um but it was a moment of that was really scary when that happened, and then I was fine, but walking around and remembering in detail the things that had happened either to me or to a colleague or to a person you know i I went into the the cinema, the movies. And I stopped on the steps and the girl that I was with, the young lady I was with, said, what's wrong? And I was like, this is where I arrested my first criminal. And she was like, oh, all right, come on. And I was like, no, 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 this is where. And she went, can you remember what he was for? And I went, oh, yeah, he was really nasty. He was like the first criminal you should never have arrested. And he was a big fraud guy. Um, but very nasty, and she was like, like to her, it was like, what? Well, just get on with it. That. But um, that's basically what I did for the week, and it was, um, it was kind of, it was kind of odd and sad, but also kind of therapeutic too, because it's been so long.
1: What were the circumstances where you were held in this house?
0: It was a um, person had been making nuisance phone calls. So I had to literally just go and say, you've got to stop doing this. And that was basically it.
1: General harassment. Yeah.
0: And stop making the calls. We know it's you and da, da, da. And when I walked in the door and it, and I you know, took my hat off and I was like, just come to have a chat with you, da, da, da. So everything was nice and lovely. The first thing I remember is that he locked the door behind me. And I was like, I didn't think anything. I was just like, um, okay, door's been locked. Anyway, we got chatting and we have this conversation. And then I was like, okay, so you know you know what? you you not got to do this, da 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 Get up to leave. And he went in front of the door and said, you're not leaving. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Of course I'm leaving. And I think, had I pressed my panic, because we have a panic button on the radios, I can't remember there's something around the radio, but basically I was trying I couldn't get to my radio to speak to say what was wrong. And he he was like, I mean, he wasn't aggressive. He was just, you're not leaving. And I'm like, I have to leave. I have to leave. I'm a police officer. I, you know, and you have to not do this, and you're gonna get yourself in trouble. And I went in total negotiate mode because his behavior was so bizarre. I thought, I might not get out of here. Something's going to happen. And I remember that I had a female sergeant on that day. And obviously they were trying to get hold of me. They knew where I'd gone because I'd been sent to an address to go and do this. But again, technology wasn't the same. And it just felt for hours, I was like, I can't speak to them and can't tell them. And I just had to sit with this guy talking shit to make sure that he wasn't going to hurt me. And his behavior was very cool, very calm, but he never left the door. So he stood with his back to the door and I I actually sat on the sofa and it felt like hours. And at one point I was like, I'm not going to get out of here. Where are they? Where are the troops? Like they haven't spoken to me, but again, I could have gone to that location and sat there for two hours, and they'd be like, "Oh, that's a nightmare for her. She's, you know, that's having that conversation with him about the phone calls because it was considered a nothing, a nothing job.
1: And they'd be waiting for that panic button to, or, yeah. or, or for you to give the signal, signal. to say things yeah. are not going well. Yeah, please. Yeah, but since you didn't signal them, they would think it was just a routine thing. Yeah, and an annoying call.
0: Yes, and eventually. I did hear them shouting me on the radio, shouting me for uh, an update. Um, Bravo Mike 1-4, Bravo Mike 1-4, I can remember the call sign. Um, I can't answer because I couldn't get the radio. Maybe he took the radio. I can't remember the, the exact reason, but I could hear him shout and hear him shouting. and I'm thinking, okay, well, now if I don't reply, they will come because I'm not replying. Bravo Mike 1-4. Before, and it went on for ages again they didn't think I was going to be in any danger or any risk um and eventually she she came with the the troops and knocked on the door and said who she was and and I actually shouted through the door and I said I'm you won't open the door and then she was like you need to stand away from the door we're coming in and he said no you're not she's staying here um and the sergeant was like he's not staying with you and um they actually put the he moved he did move away and they put the door in i think it was like on the third third ram because they rammed it um he stepped away and it 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 was obviously he was then arrested so he'd gone from a phone call nuisance to holding someone hostage (laughs) kidnap um but yeah, that was that. Uh, that was probably the only time I remembered it all was driving there last week.
1: And was it a, a female he was harassing?
0: Yeah, it was an ex girlfriend that he'd been making the calls to. But again, it was a nothing offence. Then, well, it wasn't even an offence. It was like, can can you just stop before it comes becomes something, you know? And it's way before all the stalking things were m- moving forward. Um, And so, yeah, it. but I think I was in there for about an hour, but it felt like days. Talk to this guy, keep talking, keep him calm, keep him occupied, keep him so that he he doesn't get anxious or, and that's the thing, you know, the minute he gets anxious is the minute he's going to hurt me. He's already made a decision and actually he had had a phone call to say I was going like, are you at home? I need to come and speak to you. Um, so when he locked the door behind me in his head, he had already made that decision. I don't know. I'm making that bit up because I don't know what was in his head. But And if I had been a male officer, maybe he wouldn't have done the same. I don't know. Because there wasn't anything that was untoward other than he wouldn't let me out and he was in in the way of me leaving.
1: And was he trying to kind of give you his end of the story or was it not really even that personal? It was just no. you were there and you weren't going anywhere.
0: Yeah, we did the business part of of it. We spoke about what he should have done, shouldn't have done, how he should continue moving forward. That was all done. And he was very amenable. He was very apologetic. Um, there was no, no flags on him to say that he had any mental health or any issues when we went in because obviously we'd check all of that stuff out anyway and it was all very very normal until I got up to leave and then it became not normal
1: and was there any kind of explanation for why he wouldn't let you leave or, or it was just kind of
0: just wanted to talk to me that's just wanted to talk to her that was what he said in the interview
1: it's interesting to hear somebody being described as amenable But while holding you hostage.
0: Yeah. He got charged with kidnap, actually.
1: Which is obviously way worse than what you had initially showed up for.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it sounds very dramatic, but it it was very – and I think it's going to really annoy me, so I'll have to come back to the radio thing. But there was a reason I couldn't use my radio. If I could use my radio, maybe the radio was down because our comms were terrible then. So, yeah, that all came back and it was weird that we drove down the street and it's not something that I've ever had in my, in my psyche, really. And then I saw the house and that was like, there it is. And I walked past the church tower every day for the last two weeks or week or however long I was there for. That's where I had the hammer attack. Oh, and that house bizarrely is the way, the day that I came back from the hammer attack from being off for so long sick and that's the house I went to a domestic the night I came back from the hammer attack and I got a black eye and I remember having a fight and ended up rolling over the back of the sofa and I ended up with a black eye and I was like brilliant it's my first day back mom's gonna kill me
1: so the, really the threat of physical violence was like a pretty frequent occurrence for you.
0: I mean, it's, it, I, I think thats it's not an everyday occurrence. Obviously, I was a cop for a long time, and there's probably a handful of of injuries. I think for me, I kind of got away with it lightly, to be honest, when I talked to or know some of the other guys. But obviously, there's always a, a danger if you're going to domestics or you're going to a fight. I mean, we went to fights every every Friday and Saturday night without fail we were fighting somewhere um so there's always that potential but those you know they were just they were just a fight that we were there as as cops and um that's what we did friday and saturday nights but the those four things were were more than just being part of a of a, a melee of of cops trying to break up disorder um you know that's why everyone i hate soccer because everyone's like, oh, it's so cool. And no, because my experience of soccer from the ages of 19, 18, 19, 20, 21, until I became a detective was going every weekend to the football and fighting. And, and that's what happened. And it wasn't, it's not fans. It was organized crime. It was hooligans and they would be in radio contact and they'd say, meet on Filbert Street and so-and-so's meeting at 3 o'clock and the gangs would, gangs, hooligans, whatever you wanted to call them, they would meet and have a massive fight and we'd be like, here we go again, out the back of the van. You know, like you see in a movie, there'd be 12 of us in the back of a black van and we out we go and then we'd get back in. A few would get arrested, we'd go to the next place and that was my experience of soccer and so I hate soccer.
1: Almost how we deal with like uh, Proud Boys and Antifa here in the states. You're you're dealing with soccer hooligans.
0: Yeah, I mean they were nasty back back in the early '90s. Soccer hooligans in England were nasty. The Baby Squad. They they would sew razor blades into the backs of their collars. So when you searched them, because then you know you always have improving search techniques you would run your fingers around the back of the collar to see whether they've got any weapons and they'd have razor blades sewn in the back. I mean, they were nasty, nasty. You know, that. I don't know, the world's probably image of them is the skinhead and the the tats and whatever, but they weren't football supporters. They were organised crime groups and they were bad, bad people.
1: So this wasn't just rivalries between teams. There was a criminal element to this.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It was was organized. We're going to fight at such and such a time. And it wasn't the the people who were watching the game would be watching the game. But then it would all erupt in the stadium and you'd have seats pulled out and thrown. I mean, you just would not see it in America. And I, you know, I talk a lot about the bad things in America and the gun crime and the police and the blah, blah, blah. But you would never see a game of football or basketball or baseball that you would see like a soccer game. And it was just, that was their thing. Now, obviously they've got it a lot more under control, a lot more. If not, it's kind of phased out, but hooligans, football hooligans were, were horrible.
1: So would it almost be like we would see a gang fight?
0: Yes. Yeah. The, The only thing is you wouldn't have your firearms that you would with a gang fight in America. Lots of knives, lots of stabbings. But yeah, it was the same kind of thing. Squaring up, each gang would square up to each other and and then just kick the shit out of each other, to be fair.
1: Are they fighting over territory or, or something like maybe the Bloods and the Crips would hear or is this just recreational aggression?
0: It's only to do with football. It's only to do with soccer. Um, but it was there was a territorial element, and you would travel with your football team. So it like you know your gangs here they live in an area or they you know they're looking after their patch or whatever. With the hooligans, they would travel with their team. So Newcastle, for example, and I remember a Newcastle game because I got it was just a disaster. Uh, Newcastle and Millwall were really bad. So certain teams had a really well known bad. Hooligan element to them. So you knew that when because I I policed Leicester, so Um, um who were not that great then. Um they've just been relegated again, but they did they did win a the FA Cup a few years ago or some cup. Um, but they weren't great, but they didn't have the worst hooligans, but then other teams would come and play them: Millwall, Newcastle, whoever it was. And you knew that those games you were in for a rough time because you knew their fans or their their gang, their hooligans would be coming and you knew that you were having a bad weekend. And then other teams would come. So I'm not very good with t- teams, but I don't know, Burnley. And they wouldn't have a hooligan following. So... You you were okay. So that's literally how it worked. You, your gang or your hooligans went with your team, but to fight, not to watch the team.
1: I mean, if there was a, a presence, a hooligan presence on both ends or both teams, it really wouldn't matter who won then or what the outcome would be. They, they were going to fight regardless.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously the team that lost were more aggressive. But yeah, it was a fight. That was all it was. It was organized fighting.
1: But then knowing what you knew about each of the kind of clubs, you could probably calculate a little bit what the outcome would be. Because if one team was not aggressive and the other one was, if if they lost, there would there would be a fight. But then again, maybe there, there would be a victory fight, too, it sounds like.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's a, there was just an... They didn't need excuses for why they were fighting. Um, but... I mean, we were. it was very well policed. So you would have, obviously, your away fans. So I'll talk about Leicester. So the away fans would arrive at the train station. It was a huge thing. It wasn't huge as in, oh, we'll give, you know, the football team an escort on the, the bus with the CHP or whoever. So the police would walk the fans from the train station, the away fans, they would walk them, so there would be masses of police everywhere and police horses and you'd walk them to the to the ground. And once they're in the ground, you would hope that they would stay. But then you would also have intel about where the gangs were likely to meet. Because obviously it, it was such a big event having these hooligans and intel and informants and you know, like any other organized crime, would be taking part. There was there was a police unit that looked after the football, um, or the soccer, and so you would try and prevent things by walking people off the train station. But you know there were there were gangs, and they they would come in vehicles or wherever that however they'd come, or they'd come two days before the event, or you know it it was so organised, and the police did a really really good job. And then we, at, at the time, we would police in the football ground. Now, I think main, mainly it's private security, but um, you would also be in the football ground. So, of course, the, the guys who like football would be like, oh, can I swap? Can I go in the ground? I was like, yeah, of course. I don't mind sitting in a van all day. Um, so, it But yeah, it was really organized and very, very different to anything you would see here.
1: Yeah, I mean, you go to uh, see the the New England Patriots. Well, if you have to, <laughs> as a, as 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 a maybe as a Jets fan, there could potentially be a gang that travels with them that will fight the. I mean, that's absolutely insane to think that that's just a real yeah occurrence that happens, uh, you know, on a weekly basis.
0: Yeah, it is insane, and it's. As I say, we're talking about the 90s, and I think there's been a few movies or documentaries made about soccer hooligans, but it was a real, as a as a young cop, it was, who didn't like football either, um, soccer, it was a real, it was a nightmare. It really was, and it was a nightmare for the police because suddenly you've got, like, we'd have our days off, cancelled, and then... You know, it, it's very different in the police in the UK. We, we don't do different jobs like, you know, your CHP here will had their weekend off, but they'll be working it for the NFL. And but on a police bike and in police uniform, but paid by the NFL, I can't get my head around that at all. For us, we just had our days cancelled. We didn't get anything back. We'd be given a day back eventually. And you knew for this the soccer season you were doing that on the weekend because that was they needed so many police, but the rest of the the county still had to be policed. But the resources it took was insane. But you know, even even say this, even the gang members. You know, when you support a, a football team, you don't go and and be a gang member when you're, hopefully, you know, watching the Rams. Maybe the Raiders. They do, but I can't yeah. say that. Yeah,
1: I mean, at what at one point they were known for being pretty rough. I'm not sure now with now that yeah. they're in Vegas, but
0: yeah, but it's not the same. You know, you don't go and say, "Oh, I'm going to football," because the the Gang members are passionate about their football, in a you know, and it's football for the day. Whereas in England, the soccer we're, we're passionate about our fighting and our gang rivalry, and and so it, it's just until you've lived that, you can't. You, <laughs> I was I was chatting to somebody about doing some work for a um, one of the professional teams over here, and they're like, oh, "What experience have you had?" Once you've dealt with that, you can deal with a lot of things, to be fair.
1: So as we wrap this up, I have to ask because you very, and this happens all the time when we talk off of the show, but you very casually mentioned a hammer attack. What were the circumstances of that?
0: This one I can remember very, very clearly as if it happened yesterday. And this is why I say I need to meet Olivia Benson because I am her in real life, but I can't wipe off the very large scar that I have on my shoulder. So Olivia Benson, if you're listening, let's get together. But um, it was a Sunday afternoon. It was three o'clock in the afternoon and we had a call and I was on what they call the instant response vehicle, the IRV. So it was very cool to be on the IRV because it meant that you could drive really quick. So the way that the police, our area was broken up, you had people on foot, the beat bobbies, who were walking. Then you had your four um, little, little cars that covered various areas and then you had your instant response vehicle who was an advanced driver it was the the car that had all the flashy stuff on it and we had a crew that were on the instant response all the time but then if one of them was off or sick or whatever we took it in turns from the rest of the shift it, it was it was a privilege and um so as a young as a young female new to this certain not new but new in service um I got to be on the IRV, which I loved because it meant we could put lights on and everything. And, um, so we'd gone to a call and where I, where I worked, it's very, it was, it was countryside. So, you knew if something happened, you had not got back very close. Like when I worked in the city, you knew that backup was going to be there within a minute or so at, at most. Um, But when, where we worked here, you knew backup wasn't around the corner because there's too many miles to travel. So we got a call of a domestic in progress. So we arrive at the address and the guy is coming out of the house and he has his hands up and he's like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And so I was like, are you all right? Kev, my crewmate, are you all right with him? And he was like, "Yeah." So I go past him, and I go into the house, and I walk in the house, and there's blood everywhere, and I'm like, oh, God, she's going to be dead. And I walk upstairs, and this lady, how to this day, I don't know. She sat on the edge of the bed, and there's blood every like, everywhere. And I'm not that great with blood, to be fair. but And then her head, she sat on the edge of the bed. I can't, can't see too much, but then when she turns around, her head is caved in but she's speaking. And I'm like, okay, she's speaking. That's a good sign. That's what we learn. If they're talking, that's really good regardless of what it looks like. So I put out for a, obviously for an ambulance and I'm sat talking to her and I'm holding her hand. And as I'm talking to her thinking, please don't die on me, please don't die on me because there's blood everywhere. Um, My crewmate puts out an assistance call and he's outside. And so I'm like, Okay, I need to go. You're you're talking, you're alive. I need to go. And as I got outside, Kev was on the floor with this guy on top of him, and he got like a high viz yellow jacket, and it was he was tying it round his neck, basically. Um, and he, he was choking. I could see that Kev was, you know, it wasn't looking good. So I don't ask me why I did this. But I literally jumped on the back of the guy. And as I jumped on him, he kind of turned around and he threw me at the wall. He picked me up like under my armpits and he threw me at the wall and I hit the wall the back of the house and I slid down the wall. And as I slid, I l- looked up and a hammer was coming down on my head. Thank God I looked up because if I, we wouldn't have a podcast right now if I hadn't have looked up for sure. Um, and I moved my head to the right and it smashed my shoulder and I've had three surgeries on this shoulder and obviously we put out assistance. People eventually arrived, he's arrested, she's taken to hospital and, um, I, for some reason, again, I've had two incidents in my life where I've got injured on like in a situation and the adrenaline is kicked in. Now, I didn't have, there was a little bit of blood, but there wasn't masses of blood like her head. So I stayed at work. I went said I needed to go to the hospital, but I stayed at work, and it was about 2 o'clock in the morning. By the time we'd all finished and processed them and da-da-da, and for some reason I drove to my mum's house, which I don't know why, and I went in. I, have a, I had a room at mum's, and I went in, and... She came in and said, Are you all right? What what are you doing here? And I was like, Oh, I'm good. I got hurt last night, but I'm fine. And then the next morning I couldn't move and mom took me to hospital and my shoulder was smashed and it now has pins in it.
1: But because of the adrenaline, I mean that that carried you yeah. through until the morning. Yeah. Until your mom yeah. really insisted that you probably went to the...
0: Which, yeah, she didn't need to insist because when in the morning I was like, I actually can't move.
1: At that point, it had hit you.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was, what, probably a couple of hours. I got there around two, so it was probably like by seven o'clock I was, okay, this hurts. But adrenaline is a very bizarre thing.
1: And what was it that they, they told you had? I mean, was it a, a break? Was My it- shoulder
0: w- was totally smashed, so they had to operate to take out the... And the reason there was no blood was because the hammer, the hammer was, you know, like a little claw hammer. Yeah. So the claw had gone into the shoulder and so there wasn't much blood, but the, the impact had smashed all the inside of the shoulder. And so that's why there wasn't, you know, it wasn't a big, the skin wasn't all bust or anything, but yeah. So my whole shoulder was smashed. I was off work for six months in hospital for a long time. I had to be on traction, which was not pleasant because they were trying to stretch out the damaged shoulder. And then, so yeah, I've had three operations in total because actually then when I was pregnant with my daughter, so I I was young in service and everyone was like to my mom, do you think she should leave? Do you think she should leave? And mom's like, no, because my mom was the coolest, coolest person ever. And she was like, I can't worry about her. And it's what she wants to do. So no, she shouldn't leave. And then that's so why I said, when I went back, my first day back, I got a black eye. And I was like, mom's going to kill me because i now got injured again. I and mean, it was only a black eye. So it wasn't anything major. But then when I was got pregnant, I had to have my shoulder operated on again because I couldn't, it wasn't strong enough to pick my daughter up. So they had to. Very bravely, we had to make a decision just before she was born that they operated, which they don't like to do, obviously. Um, but otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to hold her. There you go.
1: So, so great vacation. <laughs> <Yeah>. Five stars. <laughs> Trip advisor.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. At times, it can be very distracting. Always anticipating what's next in life but I believe it's important to take time to be grateful for the memories that shaped who we are. As you've heard in this episode, some of my experiences are less than picture-perfect, but without the exposure to these harsh realities, I wouldn't be the investigator I am today. Until next time, I'm Nina Hobson, and this has been Codename Siren.